Well, today uh, we're starting a new series on the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount occupies three chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7. Having reflected on the tumultuous year just past, and having seen the church's response, or various responses, to, the, to not only really both cultural and political pressures, but also to the pandemic itself, I've been driven to this text over the last few months as being, I think, especially and, and even pointedly relevant to our moment in time. So why the Sermon on the Mount? Well, a couple reasons, really. This is the first piece of ethical teaching in the first gospel. So like in the canonical scriptures of the New Testament, right? in Matthew's gospel, you have a genealogy, you have an infancy narrative, you have a baptism narrative, you have a temptation narrative, and the first thing Jesus says in the New Testament is this. And so... As such, the sermon stands as a kind of ethical banner over the New Testament. And among the fathers of the first, say, three centuries of the church, the Sermon on the Mount was quoted far more than any other passage. Far more than any other series of chapters. It has been called the greatest moral document of all time. Well, that seems like it'd be worthy of attention. The greatest moral document of all time. Augustine in the 4th century called it the perfect measure of the Christian life. And yet, it seems to me to have escaped our attention. It is a stark, I've been reading it, I can assure you, it is a challenging, penetrating piece of teaching. It cuts deep down into our hearts. And it challenges our very cherished assumptions. And if we submit to it, it will drive us to Jesus. And will summon us into the way of the cross, which we naturally detest. So it reminds us of what we so easily forget. Namely that the Christian life, the Christian ethical and moral vision cannot be co-opted by the left or by the right, right? by the masked or the unmasked. The Christian moral vision can't be tamed and it can't be domesticated because Jesus himself is our image or our model or our guide and our goal. And it turns out that if we think we have him scoped out and wired or sized up, We're in spiritual danger because he's not going to fit into our boxes here. In fact, he's going to take your little box and my little box and just shred it. Especially he's going to take your Christian constructed box and shred it. So the first thing that strikes anyone who with any seriousness at all engages the Sermon on the Mount. And again, I encourage you strongly to read these chapters. You can read them in about 18 to 20 minutes. The first thing that strikes one is its seeming impossibility. 
It's utterly absurd and preposterous demands. Ayn Rand, you know, the famous author of Atlas Shrugged, right, hero of the anti-government libertarians, she felt that the prescriptions in the Sermon on the Mount were among the most vilest things ever uttered. Didn't suit her individualism quite well enough. Among the most vile things ever uttered. Because every noble, strong, manly virtue, every ancient notion of valor and autonomy and independence and strength seems to be turned on its head here. And the church, for her part, the church has been shocked and scandalized as well. Some in the church have held that the sermon is just an impossible ideal. Some have held that the sermon only applies to some spiritual elite group, like maybe some monks. Others have said that the sermon doesn't even apply at all in the church age. There's an Orthodox Jew, Jewish scholar. His name is Pinchas Lapidi. Believe it or not, he wrote a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. And he describes the situation this way. He says, the history of reading the Sermon on the Mount can largely be described in terms of an attempt to domesticate everything in it that is shocking, demanding, and uncompromising, and render it harmless. Right? You could distill the, whole church, the church's whole historical engagement with the text of saying, well, I'm not doing that, or that's ridiculous, or that's preposterous, or that's not going to work, right? Right? And I've noticed that. Right, If you bring the Sermon on the Mount up, you will get resistance. Right? From Christian people, you'll get resistance. Are you saying this? Can that mean that? Because this is going to touch us where we really live, where our real security is. But I can assure you, the early church, and the Reformed, by the way, and others, of course, as well, have always taken it seriously as the ethic of the kingdom which has arrived in Jesus Christ. The Sermon on the Mount is not just another piece of biblical moral teaching. It is the heart of what it means to be Christian. It's been called, believe it or not, not by me, by others, eschatological wisdom teaching. Eschatological wisdom teaching because it's wisdom teaching for life in the future, which has already broken into our time. And that's part of the reason why it's not going to be captured or easily translated into the politics of this age. Not that it doesn't impinge on them, just that it will not be tamed or defined by them. So what's going on here? In the text, Jesus, the sage, Jesus, the moral teacher, goes up on the mountain puts himself in the position of the new Moses, the giver of the new covenant law. And he himself, Jesus, is the embodiment, the embodiment of blessedness and virtue. He is the icon of the flourishing human life. And from the mountain, he instructs us in this upside-down, radical, disorienting, otherworldly ethic of the kingdom of God. And the sermon begins, as we are this morning, with these beatitudes, these series of blessed are. Comes from the Latin word for beatus, 
which was used to translate the underlying Greek word that's rendered in your Bibles as blessed. And today we'll look at the first beatitude. This is from Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So I want to make three points here. They're on your outline. Um, the blessedness, the poverty, and the kingdom. So first, the blessedness. Now, since all the Beatitudes start like this, they all start with blessed are the X. We'll only look at this once then. So what does Jesus mean when he says blessed? He uses it of these various people in the Beatitudes. I think it's important to see that while it's certainly true that the person in view is objectively blessed by God, what the sermon is doing is focusing on the person themselves as the blessed one. In other words, what's in view is the state of the soul, the subjective life, Right? The interior condition of the person. So a good translation, at least a very plausible translation, is something like this, and I will use this throughout the series. Flourishing is the one who does X, or flourishing are the poor in spirit. Even delighted are the poor in spirit, or something like deeply happy or fulfilled are those who do X or Y. And this helps us see that Jesus here in the sermon, and this has been noted for centuries, he is the fulfillment of both like the Greek philosophical tradition, which sought virtue in its own way, and he's also the fulfillment of the Jewish wisdom tradition, which sought to cultivate faithful life in the covenant. So Jesus is teaching on the good life here, the life of virtue, the life of shalom, the life of peace and wholeness. This, he is saying to us, this is the way of human maturity. Right? This is the way of human flourishing. And in saying that, notice he's also saying, and these people, these people, despite all appearances to the contrary, right? despite the paradoxes, despite the disenfranchisement, these are the blessed, happy, flourishing ones. Right? This is what a truly formed and a truly integrated Christ-imaging person looks like in the world. Notice, notice as well, the Beatitudes are statements of fact. They are indicatives, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. And by implication, then, they become for us exhortations, right? exhortations to be the type of disciples upon whom this blessedness this benediction by God can be pronounced. So, for example, here in our first beatitude this morning, this morning um, we're being called to become poor in spirit. To be among the flourishing ones who are poor in spirit. So that brings me to the second point, the poverty itself. Now, Jesus does not preclude economic poverty as placing you in this category of being blessed because in Luke's gospel, he just says, blessed are the poor. But here he adds, in spirit. In spirit. So what might he mean? We know what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean that we lack dignity or that we lack value. But for starters, he's saying something like, the kingdom doesn't come to us on the basis of our merit or our achievement, right, our zeal or certainly our wealth. 
And this is why pride, even in our real virtues, is deadly in this kingdom. Pride, even in our real virtues, is a deadly thing for us. Because the kingdom comes to the poor. And the poor here has an Old Testament background. It means the marginalized, the oppressed, the powerless, those who have suffered some injustice. To be poor in spirit is to, be, to recognize one's weakness. It comes to despised publicans, to those who know they have nothing to offer. Who, as we heard in the New Testament lesson, place no confidence in the flesh or in their track record or in their pedigree or achievements. The kingdom of heaven then comes to those who beat their breasts and say, God, have mercy upon me. The kingdom comes to those who, for all of their gifts, recognize that in themselves, we are, in ourselves, spiritually bankrupt before the face of God. The poor in spirit have, in Calvin's words, canceled their account. So, another way to look at this is to say the poor are low. The poor are low. Or lowly, but lowly means low. Their face, their heart, their mouth, their words are close to the ground. And you know what that means? That means the poor in spirit, they do not have the altitude to criticize others. They don't have the vantage point from which to become a moral scold. The poor in spirit are low. Often they've been brought low by adversity. By circumstances. Sometimes it's their own unworthiness, but often it's the sin or oppression of others as well. So they know two things, right? They know that in themselves they're unclean. There's an acute sense of that, a living sense of it in the poor in spirit. But they also know their powerlessness, that they're marginalized, that they're out of power. So poverty of spirit means recognizing our emptiness. Our bottomless need for grace and for mercy. Our utter moment-by-moment dependence on God. We are people who are filled from elsewhere. So the poor in spirit then are interior vagabonds. Do you think of yourself that way? Right? We should think of ourselves that way. They are interior vagabonds. They are impoverished beggars. They are paupers of the heart. And thus they cannot be vaunted. They cannot become puffed up pontificators. They revel in their emptiness and in their weakness. So the poor in spirit know themselves. They know what they're made of. And they're not going to paper over their sins and their corruption. They estimate themselves aright in the light of the bloody cross of Christ. Right? And then they agree with the judgment that's rendered there. And that means for the poor in spirit, all their finger pointing is at themselves. All of their finger pointing is at themselves. They don't have the altitude to point fingers at everybody else. Right? They confess nothing, 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 nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, 
not partially clothed, naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, come to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Nothing naked, helpless, foul. The poor in spirit have emptied themselves out. Or they've been emptied out by God. Or maybe they've been emptied out by their enemies. But that means that they are then empty of all self-righteousness and all pride and all vain glory, all cockiness, all delusions of their own sufficiency or goodness, all egoism, all self-glory. Right? The poor in spirit are going to seek all their fullness, all their true wealth, all their righteousness, all of life from the all-glorious God, from his replete and full life. The poor in spirit are theocentric because they know they have no earthly leverage. The weapons of their warfare are heavenly and spiritual. God is their portion, their wholeness, their delight, their fount of flourishing, their blessedness and reward, their all in all. The poor in spirit are like the psalmist in Psalm 42 who says, My soul is like a panting deer. He pants and thirsts after God in the dry and weary land that is our own self-sufficiency. To be poor in spirit is to hear the words of Isaiah from chapter 57, where the prophet says this, that the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, who dwells in the high and holy place, also dwells with those of a contrite and a lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, the low ones, to revive the heart of the contrite. Right? The poor in spirit also know from Isaiah 66. Now, this was the Old Testament lesson today. Heaven is the Lord's throne. The earth is his footstool. And he will look to the one who is poor or humble. Same word in the Hebrew. The poor and contrite in spirit who trembles at his word. So the qualities of poverty of spirit are humility and contrition. So I want to say, let's take them in order. Say a couple words about each one. So the poor in spirit are humble. right? That most elusive of virtues. When we think we're making progress, it's very difficult to remain humble about it. But the point is the poor in spirit do not walk around haughty in their superiority. Constantly disappointed in these other people who can't live up to their high standards. They don't put on airs. Right? In the best sense of the phrase, they don't wear, they're unmasked. They don't wear masks. They lack then, the poor in spirit lack the confident strutting of the self-made, self-sufficient man. They're not secretly congratulating themselves on their spiritual attainments or displaying their spirituality, because they know, before the face of God, we are all unworthy servants. And secondly, the poor in spirit are broken. Broken. We have to ask this question, right? Are we broken? Do we hear a lot of broken voices during the pandemic? These are shattered people. They're shattered. There's no contrition without brokenness. They've been shattered on the rock. There's a good shattering, right? Jesus says, Whoever falls on this rock and is shattered, 
is that's a good thing. Don't let the rock fall on you. But you fall on the rock if that is Christ and have yourself shattered on that rock. The poor in spirit are shattered on the cross. They are shattered by it. And they embrace their brokenness as a gift. Here's the great paradox. Only a broken heart can carry the water of grace home. A leaky bucket is no good to you. But a broken heart, very good to you. Because a heart that's not broken cannot carry grace. But a shattered heart can. And notice that the prophet also says this about the poor in spirit. They tremble at Holy Scripture. They tremble at Holy Scripture. They do not neglect it. They engage it more robustly, right, than the perpetual scrolling through of the current political news. Right? Imagine that world. They do not stand over it as masters, but under it. Right? We stand under it as desperate, hungry hearers. And thus we can't be self-satisfied or content with our spiritual state or at ease in Zion. The poor in spirit can never be casual to the word of the transcendent God, the holy God, or indifferent as if they've heard it all. Or that we have it somehow securely in our grasp and under our control. Right? The poor in spirit have given up mastery. And you have to give up mastery to be mastered by the master through the spirit. They've given up this kind of certainty that says if only this and then this happened, then God would do this. They tremble at the word. Tremble? Calm down there, Isaiah. They tremble because they know whose speech it is. And they know that this speech is going to slay us and make us alive. It's going to strike and cut in order to heal. And they know that without it, we're going to wander off and drift and imperil ourselves. So with Wesley, the poor in spirit know scripture is the place where he speaks. And listening to his voice, new life the dead receive You know the hymn, it goes on to say, The mournful, broken hearts rejoice, the humble poor. He's drawn right on that Isaiah 66 passage. The humble poor believe, the poor in spirit believe. So the poor in the spirit know they're they're pilgrims. They, They know they are not yet home. They know there are dangers behind and dangers in front and dangers all around. The poor in spirit, and here's another paradox, have received the gift of the spirit, the first fruits of the spirit. But Paul says, having received the first fruits, the taste of the spirit, we groan. We groan for the coming redemption. The reception of the spirit has made these people thirsty. Right? Thirsty. Right? Not competent. Thirsty. The poor in spirit know they have a down payment and an earnest and a pledge and they long for the full inheritance. They are eschatological people. They yearn for the future restoration of all things. Right? They long to be like the church at Smyrna to which Jesus said, I know your tribulation and I know your poverty. 
But you are rich. You are rich. Right? They know that the hardships and difficulties and sufferings of this age are rarely resolved in this age. And they know that they're not worthy of the glory which is to be revealed. And they pant for that glory. And that brings me to the third point here, which is the kingdom. We've looked at the blessedness. We've spoken about the poverty. Let's talk about the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, in Matthew's vocabulary, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are basically interchangeable. But he often prefers to call it the kingdom of heaven, and and that hits a sort of critical note. In the sermon, and you'll see this if you read it, heaven is contrasted with the earth quite a bit. They're not correlative. They don't, you know, you can't just easily collapse heaven into earth and earth into heaven. They're different realms and they're often contrasting realms. Your treasure should be in heaven, not on earth, Jesus says. There's a sort of tension in there. And Jesus' kingdom is called the kingdom of heaven. That's its origin. That's its epicenter. That's its location. That's where those who are in the kingdom live by faith through the Spirit. And that's the destiny of kingdom dwellers. The kingdom of heaven creates heavenly people. And it will come and heavenize, transfigure, and irradiate the whole creation. Now notice this. The tense here is present. Notice, theirs is now the kingdom of heaven. And this beatitude, by the way, is bracketed by the Eighth beatitude, I believe it is, which says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is now the kingdom of heaven. And in between, in between, the tense will be future. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So surely both present and future are intended. Present and future, the already and the not yet are intended. This is why Jesus has been called an eschatological wisdom teacher. He's teaching the good life, the heavenly life, the life of the world to come. He's saying, this is what that looks like now. Because the kingdom has appeared in Jesus. It's at the heart of his own preaching, right? The spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. There it is right there. Liberty to the captives and to to bind up who? The brokenhearted. So the gospel, the kingdom comes as gift. Right? We don't receive the kingdom. And this is an important qualifier here that will have to be reiterated through the series. But we don't receive the kingdom because we have the virtues of the poor in spirit. Rather, right, rather being poor in spirit is the sign that we have received the kingdom. Being poor in spirit is the form or the shape of receiving the kingdom. And thus we have to say the absence of a poverty of spirit means... We are not citizens of this kingdom. It's very sobering stuff. The absence of poverty of spirit means we are not citizens of the kingdom. If poverty of spirit is missing, then it may be that vast swaths of the church are outside, even as they are pontificating about being kingdom builders. This is the great paradox of the Beatitudes. The impoverished ones, the emptied out people, the powerless the broken, the contrite, not the world's powerful people, or not people with big followings or political influence. These people, contrary to all appearances, are flourishing. 
partaking of the wholeness of the age to come, even now in their weakness. It's a startling word. We're just so used to these cadences, we don't realize how how just shocking this is. Let me put it a different way. The poor in spirit, by their very poverty, which might be economic poverty, it might be social and political poverty, it might be cultural poverty. It might be, it's definitely an interior poverty of spirit. By their very poverty, they show themselves to be citizens of the kingdom now. And they shall receive the kingdom in fullness later. Think about it, right? It was a recognition of our poverty of spirit that brought us to repentance and gave us entrance to the kingdom. And it will be a life of continual repentance and brokenness, a perpetual poverty of spirit that will lead us safely home. Some of you know that, uh, like in certain traditions, Orthodoxy or Catholicism, the monks, you have monks which take vows. One of the vows is the vows of perpetual poverty. They vow not to acquire private property or to accumulate wealth in any form and to live in a sort of subsistence way. Well, let me, I want to suggest something to you. That in your baptism, you have taken a vow of perpetual poverty of spirit. Your baptism pledges you to a life of perpetual interior poverty. So let us, then, as we embark on this most daunting, and it is daunting, bracing, cutting, healing, life-giving text... There are two ways to deal with the Sermon on the Mount. One is to let it do what it does to us and come out as different people on the other side. The other is to do what the church has traditionally done, saying, well, that seems ridiculous. That's impossible. What about this? How about that? Do you mean this? Oh, that's reasonable. I'll do that. We can't do that with this text. So at the outset, I I want to point out two things. At the outset of this series... Two things. Jesus says, this is how we must live. This is not some ethic for select groups of people. This is not like if you'd like to be really spiritual this week, you can turn the other cheek. But on the other weeks, you can retaliate in kind. This is what Christianity is. If it's not present, we have to go take a long, hard look. That's the first thing Jesus is saying in the sermon. The second thing he's saying is, you and I, we do not possess the resources for this life. At no place does the Christian life look as utterly ridiculous and impossible and implausible and counterproductive as it does here, other than perhaps Calvary. We do not have the resources for this life. We don't even have a map for it. And, you know, because I'll tell you this, the world's noble and great men and women, or at least admired men and women, You can throw Ayn Rand into that category for some people. They often present us with a distorted image of blessedness. A distorted image of wholeness of this eschatological life. This paradoxical life of being emptied and yet in the emptiness possessing the glory of the coming kingdom. We've got to guard our hearts against false narratives because they abound across the political and social spectrum. There are many, many, many false narratives of what human flourishing looks like. 
It doesn't look like John Wayne. It doesn't look like your favorite general or your favorite Greco-Roman hero. It looks like the teacher in this class. Right? The one who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. You know, the non-graspingness, the open-handed receptivity, the failure to grasp, to cling, to control, to shape, to determine, to form life, the open-handed, non-grasping, open gratitude, receptivity of spirit, that has its roots in the Holy Trinity when the second person decided he would not count equality with God a thing to be grasped and empties himself out, not contending or contesting for himself, becoming poor in spirit, that we too, through his emptying, might become rich precisely by becoming poor in spirit. So the what we have before us a summons, right, to imitate the master. I think it's worth asking. I know I've asked myself this as I've read the sermon over the last few months. Are we really interested in this? Or would we like something else? You know, we'll, we'll keep the Ten Commandments. You know, we'll keep the civic law outwardly. We'll try to be nice and we'll do some Christian good deeds. But we're not having our interior recesses of our soul cut into by the cross. We're not going to put our stuff at risk, that's for sure. I mean, we really like the benefits of the cross, but entering into the darkness and the mystery of the way of the cross, not so much, right? And the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' way of saying, look, there's only one way to get the benefits of the cross, and that's to go with me the way of the cross. He alone then, look, it's good to have heroes, it's wonderful to have heroes. Just be careful how you pick them. And be careful the virtues that they're, they're signaling. But he is the pattern. He's the archetype. He is the image of the truly flourishing, happy, blessed human life. Right? The son of man with no place to lay his head. And the son of man, revealed in the Sermon on the Mount, will not let us be content with the threadbare, thin persons we are, but will call us into the deep. The question is, do we want to go? So we should heed the warning of the church at Laodicea to which Christ said this, you say I am rich. And by the way, there are very Christian-ish ways of saying these things. Right? This was a Christian church that said this. This was not a collection of lunatics. Right? You say I'm rich. I've prospered. I have need of nothing. Right? Christ, I have everything in Christ. I'm rich. But you don't know, Jesus says, that you're wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. This can happen to whole churches. It can happen to whole cultures. Right? People go mad in crowds. They return to sanity one person at a time, usually. But they tend to go mad in in, in mass. So blindness to our true poverty means we are rich in spirit, not poor. There are too many people who are rich in spirit. Vaunted, high, not low. And this can only lead to judgment. Right? We have a cultural moment here. And I think this is a text for our time. The embrace of our true poverty, our weakness, is the path to overcoming, Jesus tells the church. 
because we overcome in the strength and the wealth and the fullness of another one. Because God is our all in all. And you know what? Jesus promises this, that the one who overcomes that way, the one who overcomes by being filled from outside, will sit with him on his throne, even as he sat down on the Father's throne, in the glorious, indestructible kingdom of God. Now get this, that future promise is already here, already being tasted by the poor in spirit. For theirs is the poor in spirit, theirs is now, despite all appearances to the contrary. Despite all appearances to the contrary, theirs already is now the kingdom of heaven. Amen.